When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's transfer podcast, the window closes to the sound of tumbleweed rolling by as austerity comes to the Premier League. We take a deep dive into the reasons why. Wednesday's donkey winner Maurizio Sari is now dealing with significant dressing room unrest. We take you inside the Italian's already difficult tenure. And we assess the title race ahead of the weekend fixtures and ask... Do Man City and Pep Guardiola have the mentality to face down the Liverpool challenge? Okay, well the transfer window has slammed shut and its official austerity has come to the Premier League. £180 million spent according to Deloitte's estimated figures at this stage compared to £430 million last year. Uh, notably, the top six clubs barely doing any business and even relegations threaten Southampton not getting involved. Duncan, what's happened? As ever with in these things, I think there's a lot of factors um, that are coming together here. Um, I think a important element is that the, the big six clubs haven't got involved or hardly got involved. So, you know, you've got looking at the total of transfers that there were in the Premier League, you had 22 transfers in total. Uh, full transfers and 11 loans across the 20 clubs, which is a you know a low number for any January. Of the top six clubs, there's just been two full transfers, and one of them was Manchester City signing Ante Ante Palaversa um, from Hadjuk Split and loaning him straight back, so a kid. Um, and the other one was Christian Pulisic, so a player who hasn't actually been signed for this season anyway. He's been signed for the summer, and that's Chelsea getting in early because there was a lot of competition for him. Um, and then two more loan deals for um, the, the top six clubs. So obviously the big six are the, are the clubs with the biggest amount of revenue. They have the Champions League cash. They have the biggest commercial revenues. They have the biggest supports. Um, so when they decide not to get involved, and I think there, you know, you have to go club by club there and look for specific reasons and specific circumstances at each club to explain why that's happening, then the overall spending goes down a lot, um, and that I think also has a kick-on effect around the rest of of Europe. So um, I was looking at a UEFA uh, report on the last ten years um, that was uh, released last week, and and it detailed that. 26% of the global transfer market spend in the last 10 years, uh, in this case 2008-2017, was by English, English Premier League clubs. So they really do drive the market. And if they decide not to spend, then the clubs they're buying from, and remember, um, 
typically Premier League clubs will buy 70 to 80 percent of their players from overseas or, or overseas players, foreign players, then they don't have money to spend either. So I think that's that's an element here. Then kind of um, in a contradictory fashion, so that the gross spend has gone down in January. But if you look at the overall spend for the season for the Premier League, i.e. Um, net spend, so how much they've put out and how much they've brought in in transfers, it's actually a record level. They, they've almost spent, on Deloitte's estimated figures, um, a billion pounds on transfer fees net over the entire season, so 900 million. Um, and that, if you do that in percentage terms, as a percentage of the Premier League club's revenue, it's 18% of the revenue, which is again a record figure. So I think it's the, the gross spend in this window has come down because the clubs are catch are, are having to deal with the fact that they've already spent heavily on transfers in the summer. Um, television revenues haven't greatly increased in the, on the latest cycle. And of course, when they keep buying players at high prices, as they have been doing, and the, and the market's inflated and inflated and inflated for transfer fees, you also end up paying the players very high wages. So the, the, the costs aren't just those extra costs on net spend and transfer fees, it's the costs they're, they're putting out to keep the players at the club, which again has a, a further repercussion. If you pay high wages to bring the players in and they fail, which probably the majority of transfers do fail, when you try to shift them out, they become harder to move. Um, and, you, and you can see clubs have, have been struggling to get players out in this window, even though most of the, particularly the big six, have been concentrating on doing that. So you put all these elements together and you get a market that we've seen, which is probably the quietest and um, certainly one of the dullest um, deadline days. Um, but the window in general, one of the quietest we've seen for a number of years. Quietest, I think, since 2012, Duncan, um, by um, money spent. And in fact, deadline day last year, so just that one day and the last day of the transfer window, saw just under 150 million spent. And uh, this year, it was just just a tad, very tiny fraction, over 50 million. So tell us one story. I mean, when you talk about, Duncan, the... Um, the net spend being up over the course of the season, I since the summer window going into this season, 18-19. And uh, then some clubs, depending on which club it is, either bought very well in the summer or very badly, um, <laughs> depend, depending on where they are in the league table at this moment in time. Um, I think in terms of the, the top six, I think there is uh, a concern over financial fair play. Um, although Manchester City uh, are currently the only Premier League club under investigation for financial fair play violation. Um, I think if you are Liverpool and you look at the amount of money they've spent on both transfer and wages in the past 18 months, they will be concerned about getting close to that level where they might be um, just going over the edge of what is considered acceptable. Um, in terms of uh, a club like Spurs, well, we know exactly why they're not involved in the window because they weren't involved in the last one either. And we've discussed it at length on Transfer Window podcast in the last few weeks. Uh, Chelsea, obviously, were um, uh, active in the, the signing of Pulisic. And probably, I suspect, come the summer, the £57 million that they have um, pledged to that transfer will look like good value. Um, but what's also interesting is that the loans market, I think, accounted for just under 70% of all movement. And this seems to be the new trend. 
Um, the two big ones, obviously, were uh, Gonzalo Higuain to Chelsea and Dennis Suarez to Arsenal. Um, both those um, involve a loan fee plus an option to buy um, the player after six months. And this is a bit like, um, I don't know, if, if you want to go buy a new car, you know, maybe you want to rent a car that's exactly the same as the one you might think about buying for a month and try it out and see if it suits you uh, and suits your needs. And therefore, if it does, then you go and uh, take the, the, the rented car back and then and buy, the, buy the, the, your, own, your own version of it. Alternatively, you don't. So if Higuain or Suarez don't work out, then you're not committed to very hefty transfer fee and a very hefty contract in terms of the player's salary. Which you have to say, you know, in terms of, um, I mean, Johnny mentioned the word austerity, which is a buzzword right now, then maybe that's the case. Maybe Premier League clubs are finally realising that spending, you know, cash over cash over cash over cash every single window is not the answer to getting the results that you need. And and therefore being a little bit more fiscally prudent, uh, taking loan deals, sending players out a loan where you can get their wages paid, like in the case of Michi Batshua, who went from Chelsea to Crystal Palace very late uh, in the window. Um, this is a, a means, if you like, of both saving money, but being that little bit more careful when it comes to investing. Um, you made reference, Duncan, to so many players that you bring in who, who don't work out. And of course, there's a risk involved with any transfer. You just simply don't know if it's going to work, regardless of how great the player looks on paper or how great he looked in your scouting reports and your um, software uh, stats. You're just not sure if he's going to fit into your club or fit into your dressing room or you know, like the weather or if his dogs are upset because they've had to move house. Who knows? And um, these things are the, um, you know, the untenables um, uh, and the variables that you cannot control. So I think, yeah, maybe we're seeing a little bit of caution that we've not seen. Uh, in, in, in years past. And of course, the, the, we've not mentioned the B word, but Brexit has to be um, some have some kind of influence in this because the Premier League have already uh, made uh, an appeal to the government to allow separate rules for footballers after March 29th should Britain go out of the European Union with no deal, which of course would mean that no players under the age of, um, or so between the ages of 16 and 18 could sign uh, for English clubs. And of course, we've seen an awful lot of investment in players in that age group by big English clubs because everyone's trying to find the next Messi, the next Ronaldo. And so players, clubs are stockpiling players who have got um, massive potential, but obviously no guarantee that they will realise that. Yeah, and a couple of elements there. The, the loans, it's obviously in principle, cheaper way to do things. You can negotiate on loan fee. You can negotiate on the, the percentage of the, the wages you have to pay. Obviously, the most prominent loan we have in this window is Gonzalo Higuain. Um, two clubs involved there in Italy, and Juventus, who own his contract, and Milan, who had him for uh, the whole season, were paying a loan fee of 18 million euros um, for that season. Most clubs did not object to Chelsea taking taking him and I did not try and extract any money, extra money from that deal. Um, so Chelsea got him, you could say, relatively cheap and that they didn't have to, to pay extra for a player that their, their manager was, was demanding they bring. But you could also say they probably paid over the odds and that um, Milan wanted rid of him and they'd already paid a high loan fee and, and Chelsea were prepared to take that on. 
you mentioned financial fair play. We should note that financial fair play applies to the whole of the Premier League in the sense that the Premier League has its own um, cost control measures, which essentially work on the basis of a limitation on how much you can increase your wage bill. So you're, you're only allowed to increase your wage bill by a certain percentage each season unless you generate new commercial revenue. Um, and the, the flow of commercial revenue, while increasing in the Premier League, hasn't been increasing at the rate it has been in the past. So that limits clubs. And I think when you look at a club like Arsenal, for example, part of the reason they were um, only looking for loan deals and looking for um, players on, on short-term considerations was because of that limitation the Premier League is placing them on their wage bill. Um, there's only so much that they could bring in in the one window. Um, finally, I think there's been a factor in general in the Premier League over the last couple of years, and you talk to uh, the recruitment part departments of the top teams, occasionally they want to take players internally. They want to take someone from a mid-table club or a lower-end club that's done well in the Premier League and is a proven product. Because the finances over of the Premier League have, have got so good over the last decade, not so much with the latest television deal, deal, but in preceding television deals, most of the clubs are solvent. Because they've been limited by these um, Premier League cost control measures, that helps them retain solvency. So they're not allowed to gamble on so much in wages as they used to do. So it's harder to pick off players from lower-end clubs. I mean, you, you, you've seen... Um, Josie Mourinho, for example, talking about how Tottenham, although they're no longer a lower-end club, are the sort of team where Manchester United would have bought the best players from a decade ago, not with ease, but ultimately to do the deal. When they targeted someone like Dimitri Berbatov or Michael Carrick, eventually they came to a price, they got the player out. Now they can't do that anymore. And, and that's kind of diffused down the division and it, it's become very hard to extract players. We saw this isn't a Premier League to Premier League deal, but Paris Saint-Germain wanted to sign Idrissa Gay from Everton um, and made a couple of efforts at doing it um, through the window and on the final day of the window. Normally, you'd expect a deal like that to happen. You'd expect Paris Saint-Germain to be able to get Idrissa Gay, a good footballer, but not an elite footballer, out of a club that's um, not even in the European places in England at the moment. But Everton just said no, and they have the financial capability to say no. So that, that's also a block on this, and it becomes harder to extract players um, who are proven Premier League talents from other Premier League clubs because the clubs don't aren't forced to sell anymore. Duncan, at Old Trafford's, uh, it looked like we were going to get some spending when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came in, potentially, but uh, it appears they've focused on signing players to long-term contracts. Well, they were ready to do something if they needed to, um, because obviously the, the priority there is to, to qualify them for the Champions League, and they've been looking for players. As we talked many times, the club strategy is to look for younger uh, players who they think can um, turn into future stars. Uh, they've been scouting in that area. They were ready to do something if the right opportunity came around. And also, I think, if the pressure was on them to do so. Obviously, Solskjaer's results have been so good that the pressure has dropped. Um, the fans have been happy. The demands for transfer activity are not eliminated, um, dropping into the background a bit. 
Um, I don't think it was any coincidence that uh, they waited till deadline day to announce that Anthony Martial, Anthony Martial had signed uh, a new contract. Um, that's been under negotiation for quite some time. Um, understand he'd been looking for between four and five million euros net um, a season on the deal. Um, as we discussed in the summer, his agent had essentially hopped him around um, the top European clubs and had failed to get a bite um, from anyone on the on the wages he was looking for. So it's sort of an inevitable process that he was going to renew at Manchester United, um, given that he was um, in a winning team again. Um, Mourinho had left, although their relationship hadn't been um, so bad this season and the point to the point that Martial was playing, scoring goals, being integrated in, in the team again. But, you know, it was an easy solution. And uh, why not put it out on deadline day um, when you're not uh, bringing any significant signings in? And I think there's also a PR element to the Marwan Fellini sale to China in that the Chinese transfer window is open um, into February. Plenty of days left to complete that deal, but um, it was uh, it was done again on deadline day, and again a move that uh, was welcomed by the majority of Manchester United fans who who um, never been entirely convinced by uh, Fellaini's qualities. So um, yeah, they, that's what they've done, um, and the big question is obviously going to be where do they spend their money? Um, the huge financial resources of the club in the summer. Um, how much do they think they can get away with um, not spending, I think, is the is the question here, and under which manager um, will be, they be making that spending in the summer. Well, if you listen to our midweek show, you'll know that Maurizio Sarri was a donkey winner, and he has celebrated by going a little bit bonkers with his players and having a go after their 4-0 loss away from home to Bournemouth on Wednesday evening. Ian, you're a man who's in touch with things at Chelsea. Is Maurizio Sarri losing it? He's losing the faith of his players, Johnny, that's for sure. Um, I think um, as we have uh, spoken about on the transfer window over the last couple of weeks, um, there has been a growing unrest with regards to... um, him being intransigent, let's say, with regards to tactics um, and the way that he instructs the players to set out and and play. And he does not like, he's not a man for change, put it that way. Uh, And sometimes you need to listen to your players if things aren't working on the field. Now, um, I'm sure that... um, being the the winner of the prestigious Donkey Award last Wednesday has gone to his head because after uh, that, then obviously they went out on Saturday evening and got thrashed 4-0 by Bournemouth away from home. Yeah, it's um, actually the only trophy he's ever won. <laughs> well, listen, in that case, you see, it's a case of show, shows your medals then in that case. Um, so, shows your donkeys. So, um, yeah... So, um, having uh, achieved his donkey award, obviously, he feels more empowered uh, to stick to his very, very um, dogmatic um, ways of um, how he feels football should be played. Uh, the 4-0 defeat by Bournemouth, I think, was a bit of a shock. Um, 
not because uh, not because Bournemouth are not a good team, but I think it was the manner in which they defended and the way in which they failed um, to challenge Bournemouth um, in, in many years of field. Um, and but a result of that never looks good for a Chelsea manager, uh, especially one who's had such, such um, inconsistent results as well in recent weeks. And um, even though he's reached the Carabao Cup final, which uh, clearly is, you know, progress of as such, it's the way that he comes across to the players. You're talking about, you know, people say, how do I deal with 11 you know, multimillionaires in their 20s, etc.? Well, that's part of your job, you know. And as a former bank manager, Sarri should know about dealing with people with money. And uh, clearly, he doesn't have the personality, or doesn't have the nose, doesn't have um, the ability to listen when he would rather shout louder than them. I'm told that he singled out Eden Hazard uh, in particular for his performance and Hazard did answer him back and received a, a very um, fierce rebuke for even daring to speak back. Uh, and then you've got other players in the team who are um, experienced like David Luiz, who um, is, if anything, the most pragmatic of players, I think, that any of us have ever seen regarding the way he plays the game. And it's getting to the stage now where the players don't really understand not just what he's trying to get them to do, but they don't understand why he won't listen, why he won't even change or or at least be slightly malleable um, with regards to um, the way they set up. Now, we all know the Jorginho-Conte um, argument has, has run all season and I've said it before that the Chelsea players don't understand why they're being um, uh, deprived of the best central defensive midfield and Premier League playing his proper position. And, you know, that's fine when they're winning games, but when you get, you know, trashed 4-0 at Bournemouth, then these questions are going to rise and the voices are going to be more loud about it as well. Now, what Sarri's got to deal with now in the in the coming weeks is uh, he's turning his squad back in, in towards his favour in order that they compete with Manchester City in the League Cup final, that they resume Champions League competition and that they obviously are trailing in terms of making Champions League for next season in top four. So it's a big ask because once you lose the faith, and I'm not going to say lose the dressing room, I'm going to say if you lose the faith of the players, then it's very difficult to regain that. The easiest and quickest way, obviously, is by getting results. But by the proof of what happened at Bournemouth, that's going to be difficult. And with Hazard's contract situation dragging on, other players look at Hazard and think, well, he's our best player, we're going to lose him in the summer, what am I going to do? It throws everything into doubt. And I've seen dressing rooms um, in this kind of state of flux before. And, and, you know, it really can go downhill very quickly and ends ultimately with the manager being sacked. And, of course, in Chelsea's case, that's usually how it ends. So um, I don't know what you think, Duncan, but, you know, what would be your opinion? Can Sarri get them back on side? Do you think he can turn this around? Look, all Chelsea managers get sacked eventually. It's just a matter of time. Um, he's running a, an incredibly dangerous course for the reasons that you state. Um, those players, um, although the dressing room has changed um, quite a lot in the past few years, those players know the way the club acts. And they know that managers change at a rate of knots and they know that, um, that the, 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 the club, the board, the owner lose face in the manager very quickly. 
Um, and their, their general strategy has always been, if you have this kind of um, impasse internally in the football department, the cheapest way to solve it is to get rid of the manager and bring a new one in. The most telling thing from uh, the reports what happened at, uh, at Bournemouth um, after the midweek game for me was that Sari shut his entire backroom staff out of the dressing down he gave to the players. Now, why would you do that as a manager? I, I mean, I've, I've not heard of that happening before at a club. I've heard of individuals being excluded from particular meetings because uh, the manager didn't trust them. But I've not heard of the entire backroom staff being shut out. And that suggests to me that Sari doesn't trust his backroom staff. That he thinks um, they, or a large number of them, are, are the source of leaks, um, not necessarily to the press, but maybe to uh, the owner um, and to Marina Granovskaya. Um, now, if he's isolated himself to the point where he doesn't even trust a percentage of his backroom staff and doesn't trust them to the extent that he shuts them out of a meeting like that, then not only has he got a lot of the players against him, probably doesn't have many of the, the people who are supposed to be assisting him um, in great support of him. And, and I've heard there is, there is definitely an element of distrust there. And I think, um, you know, if you're Mauricio Sari and you were examining the situation, you'd be thinking, uh, who's my assistant manager? Um, who was he appointed by? Um, and is he the guy um, who the club are likely to turn to as a caretaker? Um, and from this, do not take in any way the suggestion that Gianfranco Zola is trying to get himself the job um, or that he wants a change of management. Um, from what I understand, uh, Gianfranco, as you'd expect from a man of his char character, has been extremely helpful to Sarri um, and has uh, taken on himself uh, to allow him to adapt to English football and uh, give him an insight into the way the club works and the way opposition team set up, et cetera, et cetera. He's, he's worked as a, as a very faithful assistant through this first half season, but he's obviously um, was, was appointed partly to be the Chelsea man in the dressing room. They have a history of, of, uh, of appointing former players um, into uh, major coaching roles within the club. And, uh, and the likelihood is that he would um, be, would survive uh, any departure of Sari. So if you know, if it's the case that Sari um, is now doesn't trust his assistant manager and, and, and sees him as a threat, I think it this really is as as we've been saying for several weeks, it's headed in one direction. And now I think the question you ask is whether it's a valid one. Can he survive till the end of the season as opposed to um, will he go in the in the summer? This is um <clears throat> a major problem for Chelsea now because even though they're used to sacking managers, there aren't that many you know, valid candidates out there as we know from Manchester United's travails um, in appointing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to the end of the season and as we know from Real Madrid um, appointing their third team coach uh, until the end of the season and obviously that's not working out too well for them. So and also, from my information, Granovskaya was a big fan of Sarri um, in terms of his appointment. When other candidates um, were available, 
um, most notably Luis Enrique, who had had meetings with uh, Chelsea about the job, uh, as well as Carlo Ancelotti as well, um, who also had had meetings. And so, so Sarri was... I wouldn't say he wasn't a surprise appointment, but he certainly wasn't one of them. It wasn't the most high profile or most likely appointment. So it's going to be quite embarrassing um, for Marina Gravskaya, who, as we know um, um, from reputation, um, is quite egotistical. And it'll be, it'll be a bit of a kind of, you know, egg in her face if they had to sack Sari mid-season, having only appointed him last, last summer. And then, of course, it gives you the headache of who you employ this summer. So I doubt there's a, a huge appetite on um, in the board room at Chelsea to sack Sarri now, and they would prefer for him to turn it round and, and, and get it right. But I do think that, as I said before, I've seen dressing rooms in this kind of state of flux before, and it can go downhill very quickly to the point where, you know, the manager does get sacked. We saw it with Andrew Villas-Boas. Roberto Di Matteo as well suffered a similar fate. So... Yeah, Sarri, I think, given his profile in Italy and in European football with the job he did at Napoli, is slightly harder to sack on reputation. But if the dressing room says it's no longer functioning as a result of the manager's uh, method, mood or temperament, then generally speaking, that's when the uh, owner, Mr Branwich, appears in the dressing room or in the training ground after the manager's packed his bags and tells their players, this was your fault and some of you were paying the price unless things get better. Well, you, you say there's a lack of candidates, Ian, but Antonio Conte is still out of work. <laughs> <laughs> he even has a contract with Chelsea. So I do think he should get back and do, do work for his money. Or we could get <laughs> Rui Faria back from, um, uh, from Qatar and uh, have, have Josie Jr., and make it a third, a third attempt. Okay, with these slightly bonkers suggestions, I'm going to move on uh, swiftly to the Premier League title race and a quick preview of the weekend's action. We've got Manchester City against Arsenal on Sunday and then Liverpool v West Ham on Monday as the big ties affecting the top two places. I suppose the big question is... If Man City lose this game to Arsenal, is the title race over? That will depend, obviously, again on Liverpool. We saw what happened um, in the last week when Liverpool had a chance to go seven points clear after the sh- there was a shock result when for City to lose at Newcastle um, and failed t- to do so, um, despite some very interesting uh, gardening, which I'm sure Duncan's keen to talk about. Um, but... Uh, I don't think I've ever seen Pep Guardiola, Pep Guardiola look more... Um, bemused than he was on the bench at St James's Park um, in his time uh, in charge of Manchester City. He, at times, looked like a man who didn't actually know what was going on with his team and didn't know how to correct it. And that's very, very unusual. And that, I think, for me, was the most significant part of that defeat. Um, I think they were outfought by Newcastle United. Um, I think Newcastle has got a bit lucky. And so, but then again, you need luck in any football match, uh, especially against a team as good as Manchester City. I don't think there was any complaints in the end that, that, you, that, that, that Newcastle won it. But um, I don't think City can afford to drop many more points from now until the end of the season if they are going to retain the title. And 
this seems to me to be, I don't know, distraction perhaps creeping into that team. Um, in the League Cup final, you know, they've got champ, a very, what looks like quite a straightforward Champions League bound of 16 match to go through. I don't know. It's just to me, they look, they look like a team who, whose mind may be in other, other things and they thought they just had to turn up at St James Park and they would get a win. Um, didn't. And then I think they were very fortunate um, that Liverpool didn't capitalise and go seven points clear. So it's going to be a very, very um, important weekend for both Liverpool and Manchester City. And, um, you know, unfortunately, Duncan, um, it, Liverpool are away, so they don't have any control over what happens on the pitch. Yeah, and they can't uh, they can't have the snow sent down to one end of the pitch to to stop the other team in their counter attacks at West Ham United as they did, as they did uh, or as they almost did um, in the the midweek game. Look, I think I think the title race is in a it's in a very interesting place because really it's Liverpool's the advantage they have, um, the fact that City have played considerably more games in them and are still in both cup competitions when Liverpool have. Um, uh, dropped out of both the domestic cups. Um, points advantage they have in the division. Um, it's, you, the, the interesting thing is it, it's become a, a question of mentality. It's um, are Liverpool going to stop themselves from winning it by um, having doubts come into the play, into play, having the the history of never having won um, a Premier League title. Um, uh, affect them, the pressure that's on them from their supporters, you know, the immense home support, uh, which is can be helpful in most circumstances, but I think as an element of nerves comes in uh, when games come become tight and, and it can, can switch in the other directions at, at time. Uh, even, I think, mental questions for Jurgen Klopp, and he's had a, a long um, series of near misses, in cup competitions, hasn't won for many years since uh, since he was at Borussia Dortmund. Um, you know, he's he's very much a flavour of the month, flavour of the year, as as regarded as one of the top coaches in in European football. Um, but you wonder what happens if he fails to win the title from this position, and and um, whether he has um, some doubts and anxiety over the process because of it. I mean, certainly. Every time a result goes against them, uh, there's always an excuse. Um, as someone someone pointed out to um, uh, on on Twitter this week after after he blamed um, the snow, talking about how it was the first time he'd experienced snow in England. Um, so that's pretty difficult. And the, the team with the ball with the possession struggles more with it. That's clear, and um, it stops your counterpart counterattacks. Uh, our counter-attacks, which were good in the first moment, were more defended by the pitch than by the opponent. Um, someone pointed out, so far this season, we've had uh, we've had um, grass, wind and snow as, as excuses um, from Liverpool for uh, their bad results. Uh, obviously, the, the, uh, the Manchester City defeat was put down to Pep Guardiola supposedly intentionally leaving grass long because he, he wanted to stop uh, the superior passing side. Um, from from beating City on the counter attack, so that mental side's important. Duncan, just see on that mental side. Just a quick question mm. with regards to uh, Klopp's strategy. Would the best thing he can do 
be to look back at Brendan Rodgers and how Brendan Rodgers managed the emotion and the expectation that swirled around Anfield uh, in that fateful season where they came so close and try and manage it in a slightly different way. I don't know. I think the only common factor there is is the is the support. I think most of the players have changed. Um, Jurgen Klopp's a far more experienced um, and I think a cannier man than, than Brendan Rodgers. Uh, they have a bigger lead than than Liverpool had under Rodgers. So I think it, it's a different situation. But I mean, the question I was going to ask is, I, was, I wanted to move the mentality thing on from Liverpool's mentality to Manchester City's mentality. And I, and I think that's the, the question here because you know, Pep Guardiola usually wins titles at a canter. It's usually... Uh, close to being done by this stage of the season. And it certainly was last season when they went on to rack up such a, a high points total and one that they're, they're not, they're not going to be able to surpass this campaign because they've already dropped more points. Um, and it's that element of he's not been in many tight, uh, tight title races and won them because it's usually done. And he's not a happy individual either. He's not. Uh, he definitely feels that he has been let down by the club in the transfer market. Um, I think he's had at least two prominent press conferences talking about how City can't spend like other clubs do, how their wages aren't as high as other clubs. Um, he, we saw Frankie de Jong go to uh, Barcelona. The story is that um, de Jong's preference was to play under Guardiola. I'm not entirely convinced that story is correct. Um, I was always briefed from the Ajax end that his preference was to play in Spain. But I do accept that the attraction of, of playing under Guardiola was a big one. And I suspect when uh, De Jong talked to Guardiola, um, he was uh, very enamoured with them and probably gave him the impression that, um, that he wanted to come to Manchester City without actually committing to doing so. But the, the, the point here is that Guardiola has excuses. And he's looking um, for reasons why he's not winning. And we saw, I think the only, the only similar circumstance we've had to that was in his first season as manager at Manchester City when it became clear they weren't going to win the title and he started attacking the squad he had. He started talking about how old his fullbacks were, listing them and adding, uh, if I remember correctly, two or three years of age to each of them to try and emphasise the point about how slow they were and how they couldn't run the way he wanted to and how he couldn't play the football he wanted. He's not quite saying the same thing at the moment, but he is complaining. So if you've got that element of complaint, <coughs> feels he's, he's been um, hard done by, by the board, um, being put under pressure himself, um, having coaches like Rafa Benitez look at his system um, and work out a way of getting results against it some of the time. Usually it doesn't work, but occasionally it does work and, a, and an intelligent coach like Benitez can set himself up, be patient, uh, endure a, a difficult first period of the game with the expectation they're going to play in a different way in the second half, press and attack the, 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 the City defenders on the ball and, and, and make force them to make mistakes um, later in the game um, if, they're, if they're still in position to turn it around. And, and that can be enough. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I refer you to Pep Confidential, the book he allowed um, uh, journalists to, to spend an entire year with him at Bayern Munich. That for me, the, the, one of the most interesting elements of that book is how it details 
Guardiola's self-doubt and the way he questions himself and, and the way he is not, um, he's not as strong an individual as he comes across um, in, in the public view. And I think that's a factor here. And that means that this game against Arsenal is very important because they do need to get a win straight away. They do need to put pressure back on. And I go back to my point that I made about seeing him look bemused uh, at St James's Park. Pep Guardiola's used, used to leading a title race and winning it from the front. Challenging and chasing is a very, very different proposition and requires different skills, a different mental attitude than being able to go out there knowing it's in your own hands. And I think that's something that Guardiola, what we're seeing now is He's having just he's struggling a bit with that as well. Okay, we're going to move on now to the quick fire round, and we're going to look at the hits and misses of this transfer window. So the boys are going to predict who they think will be successes and failures. We're going to start with you, Duncan. Samir Nasri. Well, look, Samir Nasri, it's Manuel Pellegrini taking a player that he's worked with in the past um as uh, faith in his qualities and he was an exceptional footballer at one point in his career um, been out of the game because of suspension for a while it's it's kind of a a, a free throw of the dice if you like it's um, you know, they didn't pay a transfer fee for him I think the, the wages are dependent on appearances and performance on the pitch so um, if he gets two or three really good games out of him that'll be a success so in, in the in the sense that the, the bar is not very high, I think it, it might be a hit. Ian Michi Batshuayi to Crystal Palace again a gamble. Uh, I think um, Batshuayi has not excelled anywhere. Um, he's played uh, since his, in his many loan deals <clears throat> from Chelsea, um, and even though Chelsea are desperate for for goals, he obviously has absolutely no place um, even as a reserve striker. In uh, in Sari's squad, um, so I think he's got a chance at, at Palace because he'll be playing in the middle of Townsend and Zaha, both of whom are capable of providing a good final ball. They're also capable of turning defenders um, and making space inside the box for a player of Batchwise um, abilities and preference in terms of the way he plays. Um, for those reasons, I say it's it's very potentially a hit. Duncan, he's our rival podcaster, and he's about ten foot tall. Peter Crouch. <laughs> well, you know, you know what you're you know what you're buying when you or you know what you're paying for when you take Peter Crouch. Um, uh, very very nice man, Peter Crouch. Interviewed him uh, several years ago. Very enjoyable, intelligent company, and I think that's one of the reasons why you can you can sign him at this late stage of his career. It's his intelligence to know what he's capable of of doing on the field, um, and is no longer capable of doing. Um, and that height and finishing ability is still there. So I think again, um, I think it's a clever gamble, and he'll probably be a hit. Peter Crouch, of course, uh, the best one-liner in the history of uh, football, I think, when he was asked, what would you be if you weren't a footballer? And he said, a virgin. I, I, can, I can think of many footballers who would probably that would apply to, to be fair. <laughs> uh, Gonzalo Higuain, Ian. Ah, so he's the, uh, 
He's a puzzle wrapped in a conundrum wrapped in a box called Pandora. Um, theoretically, he's playing under his favourite manager, a manager who got him um, 30-plus goals in two seasons at Napoli. Uh, that's why he's at Chelsea now, because Sarri effectively demanded that um, he come because Morata clearly has never been a happy person uh, in London or at Chelsea. Um, and so Higuain theoretically should should be the answer to Sarri Ball. Um, unfortunately, um, Chelsea are not a team who crossed the ball in the way that Napoli did. Um, even though they have so-called wingers, I'd say they're more attacking midfielders than they are wingers because William Pedro and Aiden Hazard all like to come in off the wing um, and pass in behind or around the corner rather than actually take the ball to the byline and pass it through. What Higuain does best is arrive at the right time, um, gets ahead of defenders um, or can go one-on-one. And so I think there's a clash of styles, unlike as I was describing with Batshuayi and, and Crystal Palace with regards to, and I think it'll take a lot of work to um, make Higuain um, get anywhere near 10 goals between now and the rest of the season um, for that. So I'm going to put my neck on the line. I'll say that's a miss. Duncan, round us off with Denis Suarez. Yeah, I think this is a clever deal by Arsenal. Um, obviously, when I Emery's worked with Suarez at, at Sevilla, and he knows him, he knows his abilities. He's technically um, a very, very skillful midfielder. Um, I think the issue I'm, I'm told by uh, uh, contacts at Barcelona is that he's, his confidence is an extremely low ebb because um, he basically hasn't played much football for a while. Um, so Emery's going to have to manage it carefully to get him uh, his confidence back on the field and get that technical ability um, expressed in, in his team. But if he does, then um, if the option at, at 20 million uh, euros, I understand, is there, um, they, they've probably set themselves up with a reasonable deal. And, and I think, again, I think this could be a hit. Okay, great. Well, we're going to wrap things up. The transfer window may be shut, but fear not, we're going to be back on Monday to fulfil all your podcasting needs as part of our new three shows a week strategy. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to speak to me, don't know why you would, but I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. More importantly, if you want to speak to our pundits, and they're always happy to respond to feedback, at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ for Ian. I know that it's a bit of a strange Twitter name. Garbo's his nickname, don't ask. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as that helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll see you on Monday and thanks for listening.